Greetings from the Crawford City. I am Jamie Cheek. This is a view from the couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. This is what is typically our college football preview episode, but given the fact that Georgia is off this weekend, we are going to uh, pivot a little bit and we're going to talk about some other things. We do have coming up later in the podcast today, this week's viewing guide. But we're going to start today with things I think I think and we're going to start with the Atlanta Braves. It's been a few days now since the Braves were eliminated from the National League Championship Series uh, by the Dodgers. The Dodgers and the Rays have now started the World Series. Dodgers won game one handily, and then the Rays answered back by winning game two last night. The series is off today. I'm recording on Thursday afternoon. Uh, No game tonight, but game three will be played on Friday night, and then a couple of more games over the weekend. Um, I cannot pretend like I've watched any of it, and maybe that makes me a bad baseball fan. Um, I don't hate the Dodgers. I know a lot of my friends that are big Braves fans have just they they hate the Dodgers. They want to see bad things happen to the Dodgers. That was not my feeling coming out of the series. I felt like the Dodgers played great. I don't feel like um, there was anything that really happened. That wasn't anything dirty that happened, like with the Marlins or anything like that. Even even the issue that we ran into last year with the Cardinals and the NLDS when they hit Acuna in Game Five after the way uh, he had strutted around earlier in the season or series, nothing like that happened. I, I know some people were really upset about the Max Muncy kicking the ball, which I I mean I thought that was shady. I think my frustration with that situation was more on the fact that. For whatever reason, there didn't seem to be anything that the umpires on the field were either able or willing to do about that situation to rectify it at that moment. It didn't cost the Braves the series. It wasn't the end of the world. So I don't see the Dodgers as villains. You know, um, when you have players like Bellinger and Mookie Betts making just extraordinary defensive plays in the field night after night, at some point you just have to tip your hat. And when you have them just relentless at the plate, the way they were, especially in games five, six, and seven of that series, the way they were counts, the way that they just, they didn't give up, but then they are the most streaky offensive team I've ever seen. It's it's almost like football or basketball in the way that once their offense gets going, you just feel like you can't stop them. I mean, it they they put up points the way a basketball team does when they start getting hot from three. That's kind of what it feels like when you're you're watching them and they get going and you're just like, oh my God, I don't feel like we can even hang on here. So, you know, for for me, everything now has, has very quickly turned. I, I don't care who wins the World Series. You know, I, I, and a couple people I've seen have said, well, if the Dodgers win, you know, you can kind of think at least we got beat by the best. That's fine. I mean, that's fine. I'll take that. I don't necessarily disagree with it. But for me, I'm at a point with the Braves. I don't want any moral victories. I don't want to take any solace out of the fact that the team that beat us ended up winning the World Series. I just want us to be the team that wins the World Series. That's it. And anything short of that, I I don't really care about. Um, And maybe that makes me a bad fan. Maybe that means I don't have perspective. I, I feel like I can have that attitude and... I can be satisfied with the fact that this team overcame a lot of injuries and overachieved, especially in the playoffs, especially for the fact that you're missing Mike Soroka. Nobody else stepped up starting pitching-wise throughout the season. I mean, there were so many nights where we were down four to nothing in the second or third inning, and then the team rallied back and wins the game. And, you know, obviously we saw a, a lack of the ability to rally in the playoffs, but overall, I think the team overachieved and yet I'm still disappointed. And so if, if, if that doesn't work for you, that's fine. That's just where I'm at. So that was, I guess, more of a preamble than anything. What I want to talk about is this narrative and it's, I've seen it many, many places, but Mark Bradley in the AJC wrote um, an, an opinion piece a couple of days. Maybe it was Monday. It might've been Tuesday before it came out. So a couple of days after game seven, um, talking about this being the beginning of something for the Braves. Now, I would like to clarify that this began three years ago. It began with the 2018 Braves completely overachieving and everything that happened that season, underachievement from the Phillies and the Nationals for sure. But that that team that was just fun, 
that was completely outmatched by the Dodgers in the playoffs in the way that, you know, some lazy fans are kind of pretending that this series, this 2020 series can be compared to the 2018 series in the NLDS. Those people are just stupid. I love you if you're a Braves fan. I hope good things for you. But please uh, stop speaking out loud to people about the Braves. Because if you think there was no difference between the 2018 matchup and the 2020 matchup, I can't help you. There's just no way to explain how diametrically opposite those two series were from a talent standpoint and where this team is now. But my fear is that there is a lot of assumption happening in Braves country right now. And it starts with this concept of, hey, this is the beginning of a window that everything's going to be great moving forward, that the sky is the limit from here and the trajectory continues to be up. Hey, look, I hope so too. But there's some big questions about this team, really big questions. And that is what I, what scares me a little bit. You know, I hear the way that people are talking about the future for this team, and it reminds me of the Nationals the year they shut down Strasburg, when it was just like, nah, we'll be back. We'll be back. We'll get it worked out later. I, I do not feel that way. I, I do not feel that this was a, all right, well, we missed this chance, but there's going to be other chances. I hope there will be. But let's talk about the fact that this team is going to have some huge holes to fill. So we're going to start with the fact of I need to establish the holes. So just in case you aren't aware, the following players are free agents right now. Mark Melanson, Shane Green, Josh Tomlin, Marcelo Zuna, Nick Markakis, and Tyler Flowers. Now, I think it's very fair if you hear that list to go, wait, 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 wait. Markakis, He's really old. He didn't do much in the, in the playoffs. It's not a big deal that he's a free agent. Flowers didn't even play. Tomlin was terrible. Okay, I'll give you all that. All that is true. The, the Braves also hold an option on Darren O'Day, who could potentially be a free agent if they do not pick up the option. But let's, let's, let's concede the three guys that maybe didn't contribute at a really high level that a lot of Braves fans might not be too upset if they don't come back next year. Tell me how this team replaces Melanson Green and Ozuna. Just tell me. And I don't think that you can assume that those three players will all be re-signed. So if you're talking about the bullpen, guys, let's start there. There's nobody in the bullpen that can slide into two spots. Okay, now you've got Luke Jackson. And as I say that, many people, if you're driving, you probably just ran off the road. I'm sorry. Uh, If you're sitting at your home, you probably just got that pit in your stomach. Like when you see blue lights behind you and you're like, oh, God, it's me. That feeling. No, I'm not saying that Luke Jackson is the answer for Melanson's position. I am saying Luke Jackson is very young and he has really good stuff. And if they can ever get the square foot between his ears figured out, I think he could be a very good reliever and potentially a closer down the line for the Braves. Now, if you could figure out the head problems for Sean Newcomb and Fulte, then we would have been in a much different situation in this playoff series against the Dodgers than we were. So I don't think you can just assume that as he gets older, Luke Jackson's going to be able to calm himself down enough to be an effective relief pitcher. But if you take... Green and Melanson out of this bullpen. Yes, you still have Will Smith, but you are missing quite a lot. Okay? I thought Chris Martin, and the list I saw, maybe Martin is a free agent and I just missed it. Maybe we signed him to a two-year deal. I'm not sure. But the list that I saw did not have Chris Martin on the list. But between Melanson and Green, that's definitely two of your top four relievers and your closer. So, yes, Will Smith has you know, closed before. He was really good with the Giants in that role last year. But Will Smith gave up like 100 million home runs this year. I think that's an exact number. So there's some questions with Will Smith. I thought early in the playoffs and even early in the series against the Dodgers, he looked really good. Maybe he just got tired at the end of the year. But if he, or sorry, the end of the series. But if he did get tired at the end of the series, that in and of itself is a red flag because you need to be able to go to your closer at least back-to-back nights if needed without having to worry about whether or not he can perform. So 
there's some questions in the bullpen, and the bullpen was a huge strength of this team last year. And then, of course, you get to the biggest question of all, which is Marcelo Zuna. Marcelo Zuna won't get a lot of talk for MVP. They mentioned it actually more on the broadcast than I've, I've heard anybody else talk about it. You know, Braves country has united behind Freddie for MVP, and I understand that, rightfully so. You know, I think part of it is because of his performance this year, which was really, really good. I think also part of it, we're hoping there's a little bit of a Lifetime Achievement Award because he's been underappreciated for so long. It's the least baseball can do is to throw him an MVP because he's been great. Just today, it came out that he's not even up for the gold glove at first base. That in and of itself should mean that nobody should care anything about any of the rest of the gold glove candidates because if you follow baseball, and your job is to help narrow down the three best defensive first basemen to try to pick one to win the gold glove in the National League. And one of the three guys, I mean, think about it. You've got 15 starting first basemen. If you're trying to tell me that Freddie Freeman's not in the top three, then you're an idiot and you shouldn't get a vote. So I'm a little, little hot on that one. I just saw it a few minutes ago. Tell me how this team handles Marcelo Zuna. Because we got outbid for Josh Donaldson last year. and you cannot expect to hit the lottery for the third year in a row when it comes to signing a bat, okay? You found Donaldson, you you paid him a lot of money, probably more than he was actually worth, but he ended up overachieving and making it a, a, a fairly valuable deal, I would say, on that one-year deal for Donaldson. Now, had Marcelo Zuna had an entire season to do what he did in this short 60-game season, you could have seen Marcelo Zuna as the National League's MVP, or if not, at least a lot more people would have recognized the fact that he was the perfect guy to follow Freddie Freeman. And I don't think you can assume that Freddie Freeman is going to be as good moving forward without somebody like Josh Donaldson, which obviously will not happen, or a Marcelo Zuna batting behind him. You know, now, could Alex figure it out? Could he go find another guy to take a one-year deal? Sure. But the reality that I think we have to have is there's some big holes for this team, and the team has shown that it is reluctant to spend big money to fill holes. There is no reason. And I think all of us can agree on this now. The season's over, so we can go back and we can just revisit this one last time. There's no reason... A veteran pitcher should not have been brought in before the season, better than Cole Hamels, somebody more dependable than Cole Hamels. And there is no reason that there should not have been done more at the trade deadline. Now, everybody's going to balk at that and say, well, are you giving up Drew Waters? I, I, I don't know, okay? But even if it's not Lance Lynn, even if you don't get one of those top guys, go get somebody. Get me somebody. Because what you needed in the playoffs is you needed – one more starter and you're in the World Series. That's it. And you got great outings from Kyle Wright in the Division Series, Ian Anderson all the way through the playoffs, let's be honest. You got Bryce Wilson throwing the game of his life in Game 4. You got a lot out of the young guys. What you needed is one more guy. One more guy, and I, I, I found myself texting this to somebody, and it's the most ironic thing in the entire world. If we would have had a Julio Tehran, to pitch game five, six, or seven of this series, we'd be in the World Series right now. I believe that with all my heart. And we didn't have that guy. So the fact that we got as far as we did with what we had should make us feel good. And it should make us feel excited, especially from the pitching side, exciting from the future. Because if Wilson's the fifth guy, now all of a sudden, maybe you don't have to go out there and spend Huge money on a starting pitcher. I still think you need to go and get somebody. I don't think at this point between Soroka coming back from the injury and Wright and Wilson, I don't think you can just bet on all three of those and then be dumbfounded if something doesn't happen with one of those guys. So I think a little insurance on the back end is still what the Braves should do, and I think it honestly is what they will do. They're not going to go spend $18 million on a starting pitcher, I don't think. I'll be surprised to see them do that again. But the, the big question is Ozuna. And in, in the post uh, press conference the other day, the, the press conference with the media, not immediately following game seven, but a couple of days later, to me, 
it seemed like the Braves were at least entertaining the idea of making a competitive offer to Ozuna, but it seemed to be completely dependent on some sort of announcement coming with the DH in the National League. Now, I hope they go ahead and keep the DH in the National League. I think it was, I think it's just where baseball is. And I've gone completely 180 on this in the last couple of years. I understand the fact that, you know, from a strategy standpoint, it really simplifies the game. It takes a lot of different elements out of it. But the reality is it's just so mind-numbingly boring and annoying to have somebody who is completely inept at hitting try to do that three or four times a game. And it, you know, just completely selfishly moving forward with our young pitchers, I don't want to see them continuously taken out of games when they can go deeper because they have to like be subbed out for a pitch hitter in the sixth inning. So I like it. I hope they keep it. If they don't keep it long-term, well, I say that if they don't allow it to come back next year, I do think it will be a part of the collecting bargaining agreement that they're working on. And I think we will see it permanently starting in 2022. And I think most people understand that. And that's why I think whatever they have to work out with the players association, I think they will work that out. The question then becomes the timing, because if the Braves are going to wait on Ozuna to make sure that they get the answer they want on the DH, I don't know how quickly baseball is going to come out with that. And the way Ozuna played, I don't know if you're going to be able to say, hey, give us a couple weeks and we'll get back to you. Because I think somebody's going to throw him some money and say, you know what, if he has to play a, a really crappy left field for us for one year, we're willing to do that. But we want this guy for two, three, or four years. Now, I don't think at 30 years old, Marcelo Zuna is going to get a six or seven or eight year deal. I don't, I, I obviously don't think that's going to be it. But giving Ozuna four years compared to giving Donaldson four years is completely different. And I know Freddie Freeman's got one year left, and Alex is talking about re signing him, and of course we need to get that done. But man, I think it would be a huge huge miss for this team to just assume, okay, we can let Ozuna go like we let Donaldson go and everything will work out on the back end because it's not just losing the production from that Ozuna spot. It's losing the protection for Freddie Freeman. And I don't know what that looks like moving forward because you can't take the middle of your order and replace one guy and weaken another and think everything's going to be fine. So it's not all doom and gloom for me. Obviously, the the arms are coming around. I mean, what we saw in the playoffs from Max Fried and Ian Anderson was spectacular. It was just spectacular. And I felt like Kyle Wright, obviously game three is going to be something that he has to mentally get over. You know, Fulte never got over the way he got roughed up in game one of the twenty. 18 division series, but, or game five of the 2019 division series, but hopefully Kyle Wright can get past that because he's got a lot of talent and Bryce Wilson showed that he's got something, you know, I, I don't know if his talent is as high as a Sirocco or an Anderson, but man, that, that kid has got some fight and some determination. And if those guys are ready, then the pitching staff could be very, very good next year. But you saw at the end of the day, even as good as any pitching staff is in 2020, you got to be able to score runs. So I hope that we can do all of these things. I hope that you can bring Melanson back for maybe a year or two. I don't know about Shane Green. I, you know, Green is 32 years old. I don't know if he's going to be looking how what he's going to be looking for. I don't know how happy he is in Atlanta. You know, I, I don't know what these guys are looking for. You can't. You're not going to be able to do Will Smith money for all three of you know for Balance and Ingram. But Ozuna, if it takes, I mean, if it takes seventy five million dollars over three years, I'm paying that right now if I'm Alex because you have this window. And we talked about it earlier in the year on the podcast. The big money on the Acuna deal and on the uh, Ozzy Albies deal doesn't kick in for another couple years now. And so you still have those guys, even though they have big contracts or, you know, relatively large contracts over the course of 
the next six and nine years, you have them cheap for another year, both of them. Go out and spend some money. I it, it's going to be an investment. It's going to take some you know some convincing, but I genuinely believe if you told me that you can bring these pitchers back, fill in the blank with some you know some. Adam Wainwright is the guy that I am now identifying after listening to him in the division series. That's the guy that if the Cardinals don't offer him a contract, I just see it very, very likely that the Braves will say, hey, Adam, one year, 12 million. Why don't you come give us a hand? And that's the kind of guy I think this year is the year the Cole Hamels would make sense because you think you have everything. You have a lot of depth. You think you have the five guys, and there's still another guy or two that you could turn to if those guys don't work out. But then you you come over the top with it. Not all right. So we know we got two starting pitchers, and then we're going to throw in a couple of old guys, and then just assume that one of these other five guys will hit, and that's our five. Um, so I think they'll 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 get some experience. But if you told me you can bring this bullpen back. You keep Ozuna, and you add just one veteran, decent starting pitcher just for a little bit of depth. I feel really, really good about next year because I think if we had Mike Soroka this year, we could have probably won the World Series. And it's easy to say that, right? But, I mean, just looking at how the series played out and understanding where our team would have been, the, the seven games in seven days, that cannot be ignored. In a normal year, I think maybe we win this series. But because you didn't have any off days and you couldn't bring guys back earlier than you wanted to, and you you know for the Braves you don't, you can't pitch these guys on short rest when they've never done it before, so it it just worked completely in the Braves' disadvantage this year. But I think the foundation and what they have is obviously really really good. But there are some key questions, and for guys like Mark Bradley and Mark Bowman and just fans in general to just assume that we will not screw up the offseason. I think that's really, really naive. Because we got lucky with Ozuna last year. And we didn't get lucky with the pitching at all. Whether it's Cole Hamels or Mike Fultonavich or Sean Newcomb or Felix Hernandez, we didn't get lucky with any of the pitching. And it ended up costing us a shot, at least, at a World Series. So the future is definitely bright for Atlanta. I'm not trying to say that there's it's over and the, the streak is over and, you know, we've won three in a row, but we're done next year. We won't even make the playoff. Yeah, I'm, I'm not doing that. So don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But don't just assume that 2021 is going to be even better than 2020 because that's the natural progression for the team. Because the reality is there's some big holes to fill. And unless something changes, I don't think we can trust Alex to at least fill them in the way that we would want them. My second thing that I think I think this week, obviously, is going to center around the the dogs. Uh, now that the Brave season is over, until we get some more news, it's going to be a lot of football. So uh, buckle up. Georgia fans' passion in this off week with no game to get ready for this weekend. Our passion is impressive. But the amount that we are letting it override every piece of logic on the board is absolutely infuriating, and I got to be honest with you, I am, I'm just over it. I'm just over it. I, I, I talked on Sunday night when I recorded the podcast right after the game ended. I talked about the fact that I get people telling me all the time that they hate dealing with Georgia fans, and this is, these are people that live in the state, and, you know, their friends, coworkers, people they go to church with, whatever, are Georgia fans, and they are not Georgia fans, and they just talk about how ridiculous it is talking to Georgia fans. And I've always kind of listened, but, you know, always kind of just, okay, whatever, yeah. I mean, you know, in my perception, I've, I've been to games and been an Auburn fan, you know. I, I, I've been to game. I mean, I, I have to interact with some Alabama fans. You want to talk about some obnoxious people, Alabama fans, my God. So I just never really, I don't know, it, it, it never clicked. I didn't necessarily think those people were lying, but, man, this week has been eye-opening. And let me just say, if you're a Georgia fan listening to this, you probably suck. I'm not saying it's your fault, but you probably suck because everybody wants to blame Stetson Bennett 
for the loss at Alabama on Saturday night. Everybody. And I don't see it, guys. I mean, I, I said it Sunday night. I'll say it again now. I was, I might have been the last person on the Stetson Bennett bandwagon. I just got there. I really did. Because everything everybody is saying now is what I've been thinking since he came in against Arkansas. Okay, but. Okay, but. I really was impressed with the way he played against Auburn, but can we really win with this guy? The way he brought us, you know, stay composed and, and help us against Tennessee, okay, but can he play at the highest level? Listen, the way he played in the first half against Alabama, the way we played in the first half of Alabama, you can win a national championship with Stetson Bennett. Will it be easy? No. But it's not easy, and that's the reason Georgia hasn't done it in 40 years. You can win a national championship with Stetson that's invented. Everybody else has to play perfectly. But it is driving me absolutely crazy reading on the dog vent, hearing on the radio, people call in, seeing things on Facebook and Twitter. People are so in love with JT Daniels. Let me tell you who JT Daniels is. JT Daniels is the pretty girl at school who you see across the room. And you see her. And she's beautiful. And you just know that if you ever talk to her, she would be your soulmate, but you never talk to her. But in your mind, because you have never talked to her, that is who she is. She remains this perfect image of everything that a relationship ever could be, everything that a girlfriend or a wife or whatever you're looking for. She remains that. She's unblemished because it's not real. And that is JT Daniels. Everybody who just said, well, if he was playing, we would have beat Alabama. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Maybe. You know, and, and, and that's that's the hardest part of this for me is I'm trying to thread a pretty small needle here. I don't know. I don't know. The only thing that I have to go off of is the fact that Kirby Smart makes a lot of money to make this decision and he keeps playing Stetson Bennett. And based on his comments this week, we're going to see Stetson Bennett against Kentucky. And I'm sorry, but I don't see somebody's first start coming in Jacksonville, which means we're probably playing Stetson Bennett against Florida in a couple of weeks. So that's all I'm going off of. I don't know what JT Daniels can do, but the people who keep talking about, well, it's time to give JT Daniels a shot. Why? We're 3-1. and one. We just lost to what may be the best team in the country. If not, it's definitely the number two team in the country. We just lost on the road to a really good team in a game that was a little bit more competitive than people are acting like on the back end. You were up 24-20 to 20 at halftime. Should have been 24-17, to 17, but Saban gets his extra second. You were winning the game. And you didn't lose the game because of the quarterback. You just didn't, guys. You didn't. So I really don't understand how anybody could think that that pretty girl across the room that they see, well, she has to be great. Look how pretty she is. JT Daniels, I, 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 I saw like two clips of when he was at USC. Boy, he's got an – we don't know who this guy is. And the reason that we can be so excited about him is because he hasn't done anything to disappoint us. It's a dream. You're all just living a dream. Let me, let, me, let me explain to you why I don't think we can blame Stetson Bennett, okay? Georgia against Alabama on the road scored 24 points, right? 24 to 20 at halftime. Should have been 20 to, 24 to 17, but, you know, save them. 24 points on the road at halftime. Offensive game plan, I shared it on Sunday night. I, I didn't. I don't understand it. Tip balls, all of the things that happen, we all know. The, the end of the day is this. They scored 20 against or 28 against Auburn at home, and everybody was really impressed with Stetson. But now 24 on the road at the number two team in the country is not good enough? I don't understand. So I get the need to blame somebody because let's be honest, and we do, we're doing the same thing with the Dodgers and the Braves. It sucks to just lose, doesn't it? It just does. It, it just sucks to lose, and we lose a lot, and we've lost a lot in this state and in this city for a long time. We've, we've lost a lot, and we haven't gotten any better at it, which I don't know that that's a bad thing. I don't know that we want to be good losers. 
But we are not good losers. Because we need a we need a villain. We need somebody to blame. Last year the Cardinals, they made it easy on us because they blew us out in game five and then hit our best player just because he, you know, likes baseball and enjoys playing the game. The Dodgers didn't accommodate us that same way. So it's hard to hate them. And it's easy to hate Alabama. I don't know anybody that's not an Alabama fan that doesn't hate Alabama. So I'm not saying it's hard to hate the Tide. I am saying, for me at least, it's hard to look at them and say, yeah, they they just beat us. On Saturday night, they were just better, period. But if you have to have somebody to blame, I'm going to give you four people. Or I'll give you four answers to me that are much better than Stetson Bennett. Let's start with the defense, just the whole defense. Now, I'll preface this by saying I still think we have the best defense in the country. I think the best defense in the country just got lit up for 41 on the road at Alabama. Those two things can be true. We can have the best defense in the country and still give up 41 points on the road to Alabama. But if you want to blame somebody, you know, I just said we beat Auburn by scoring 28 points. We lost by 17 the Alabama when scoring 24, how is that the offense's fault? You scored about the same amount of points. You're not even competitive because the defense gave up more points. So the defense gives up 41 points at Alabama. They had given up 37 points the entire rest of the year. So you can just say maybe they had a bad night. Maybe it's just a bad matchup. You can say whatever you want. But I blame the defense before I blame Stetson Bennett. What about Jermaine Burton? The kid... I mean, every ball that was thrown to him, other than that one touchdown pass he managed to hang on to, he he was dropping everything. He dropped a critical third down early in the third quarter. He obviously had that one ball that was tipped right off his hands into the secondary. If he catches the ball, I'm not saying it's an easy catch, but if he catches the ball, they don't pick it off. Let's blame him. What about Todd Munkin? Run the ball, Todd! run all over him in the first half. Pick a running back. It was running back roulette. Whoever was back there, we handed the ball to him. They got six or seven yards. We were running it all over him. All of a sudden, the second half, we decided, you know what? We did the Mark Rick thing, guys. You know what? They think we're going to run it because they can't stop the run. But what we're really going to do is we're going to fake the run and do something they might be able to stop. Ha <laughs> ha! Stupid. Run the ball. Make them stop you first. The game against Auburn. The reason we were so dominant is because they never stopped the run. And if they don't stop the run, then you just keep running it. I mean, obviously, not every single play. But we went past happy in the second half before we ever really had to. There was no reason in the world that the run game should not have been featured in the second half, at least to the point that you get down more than one score. Now you're down more than one score, okay, you have to throw a little bit more. That's the nature of the game. But... For most of the second half, we were still in the game, even though it felt like the momentum had shifted. I'll give you that. But we just completely abandoned the run, which was the really the, the only thing that was working consistently with the offense because of the drop passes. I go back to Jermaine Burton. So you want to blame somebody? You want to blame Stetson? I, I'll offer you not option number three, Todd Munkin. Run the ball, Todd. I said four. You know, who's the fourth one? Okay, we've blamed the defense for the 41 points. Burton from the drop passes. Munkin for the bad offensive play call in the second half. Who's left? Oh, yeah. The guy that's making $7.5 million a year. You want to blame somebody? How about we blame Kirby Smart? Now, where's the logic in that? I don't know that there is a lot, but there's not a lot of logic in blaming Stetson Bennett either. Beat Saban. Beat him. Just beat him. It's your job to coach the team. You get paid a lot of money to coach the team. Figure it out. Figure out how to hold a lead because this is three straight times we've had a lead on Alabama at halftime and not one. Now, we were not nearly as dominant in this first half as we were in the national championship game or the SEC title game in 2018. But you had the lead. You went on the road. You went into Tuscaloosa, and you had a 24-20 to 20 lead at halftime, even though it should have been 20 to 24-17, but Saban gets his second. Beat him. Figure out how to finish. We are a third quarter and second half team against every team in the country except Alabama. We blew Tennessee out in the second half. We don't do it to Alabama. We can't hold a lead against Alabama. So I've given you four options of people that I think 
are more appropriate. If you just if you just have hate in your heart and you just will not be happy unless you blame somebody, there's four people to blame. You can blame the defense, you can blame Jermaine Burton, you can blame Tom Munkin, or the head man Kirby Smart. Now personally, I'm gonna opt for a different option, which is I'm gonna say that Alabama's just better than Georgia right now. That sucks. Because I don't know if there's anything we can do to fix it. But before this season, everybody was talking about the fact that, hey, it, it's going undefeated with an all-SEC schedule. Is that really realistic? And most people, I think, said no. So let's start with that right there. Ten-game schedule. If you were to look at our schedule before the season started and say, all right, Georgia's going to lose a game, which one do you think it would be? It's going to be Alabama. On the road at Alabama after you played Auburn and Tennessee the two previous weeks, it's going to be Alabama. That's easy. Now, ask yourself a different question. If you're going to pick one game on the schedule for Georgia to lose, you have to have a loss. Pick somebody. On the road at Alabama. Why? Well, because they're not in your division. It's on the road. You can still beat Florida and win the SEC. Hmm. Well, that is also the right answer. So all of the burning down of everything that's happened over the last few weeks is completely illogical because unless you thought a team that was replacing its starting offensive line practically, new offensive coordinator, new quarterback, new running back, and replacing its number two and three receivers from last year, unless you thought that team was just a lock to go 10-0 and in the SEC, all-SEC schedule, then you had to assume there was going to be a loss. And if you accepted the fact that there was going to be at least one loss, of course this would be the loss. So what are we freaking out about? We are in the same spot right now as we have been the past couple of seasons. 2017, 2018, not last year. Well, yeah, last year too, even though it was South Carolina. It's very, very simple. Go to Jacksonville, assuming we beat Kentucky, which I feel good about. I don't know that I would have felt great about Kentucky if we had to play them this week because they're a physical team, and we were going to be coming off a, a physical game against Alabama. With an extra week, I feel good about Kentucky. You go to Jacksonville, you beat Florida, you go back to Atlanta, and you shoot your shot in the SEC title game. That's it. And for a team that has done just that the past three years, I really don't know what everybody's freaking out about. I really don't. Losing sucks, but you do not burn the house down because you need new carpet. Honey, this carpet is pissing me off. Burn the whole thing down. And that's essentially what Georgia's doing. And that's what Georgia fans are doing. We lost the game on the road at the number two team in the country. We went all the way from three to four, dadgummit. Fire them all. New quarterback. Start thinking about where Kirby can go. Who can we get to replace him? Re the reality is this. Alabama may be the best team in the country. A lot of teams are going to lose to them. Think about that. With all the teams playing college football last week, how many of them would have gone on the road and beaten Alabama? The answer very may, very well may be zero. If you want to say Clemson, okay. But Clemson's never gone on the road and beaten Alabama and Tuscaloosa. Never played them. They've never not done it. So we can't really say what we think would happen. But Alabama's really, really good. I think Georgia's pretty good too. But let me ask you one more question. If I told you that Georgia was going to beat Alabama this year for the first time since it feels like the 60s, but it's just been since 2008, would you have wanted it to be Saturday night? Because here's the deal. If we're going to beat them, let's beat them when it really counts. Because you know, take a breath and think about this. Georgia goes 10-0 and and loses to Alabama in the SEC title game. They're not letting us in. You know that. You know it in your heart. Georgia goes 9-1, loses on the road to Alabama. In Tuscaloosa, comes back in the SEC title game and beats Alabama. 
They can't keep us out. And that's the difference. Now, would it be better if we just beat everybody we played every time? Yeah. But that's really not very realistic. So if you're only going to win it one, if you're only going to beat them once, wouldn't you rather it happen in the Dome? Or I guess in Mercedes-Benz? I would. So let's everybody take a breath. Let's use this off week. Let's go outside. It's going to be, I think it's supposed to be nice weather. It's nice out here right now. I'm sitting on my porch recording this. Go outside. Take a few deep, soothing, cleansing breaths. And calm the frick down. We're the number four team in the country. We're going to play Kentucky. And then we get to play our rival to put ourselves in the catbird seat. To head back to Atlanta for the fourth straight year to play for the SEC. I know we all want a national championship. I can't say I want it more than whoever's listening because I don't know. I can promise you, you don't want it more than me. But we cannot, we cannot continue to do this as a fan base. We cannot continue to just wig out and freak out and completely abandon all hope at the first sign of problems. It just makes it to where we suck. And we don't need to do that. We are going to finish up today's Things I Think I Think with talking about one of the banes of my existence. The fact that here we are, it's a beautiful fall afternoon in the classic city. It's almost like 75 degrees. The leaves have fallen in my yard. I realize I got to get out there and, and then rake them up. And the Big Ten is getting ready to start playing football. The rest of us have all been playing. You know, the ACC has been going since early September. And the SEC has been going for a solid month now. But the Big Ten is joining the fray this weekend. And so the Big Ten is back. Now, I'm going to give you the good and the bad of this situation, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what we can expect from the Big Ten this year. We're going to start with the good, okay? And you're going to see this here in a few minutes when we go through this week's viewing guide. The good, from a college football fan standpoint, is there is more football. It's like a buffet. Like, not a very good one. They've got, like, a few things that you really like, but then just a lot of options. So maybe it's not the best mac and cheese in the world, but it's better than not having mac and cheese on the menu that's how I feel about the Big Ten. Because when you start looking at the games that you want to, you know, kind of at least keep an eye on over the course of an entire Saturday, well, you can throw maybe a Big Ten game or two in there that it's just like, you know what, if, if I don't have a game that I really want to lock in on and watch, I'll peek at this game. I'll peek at, you know, whoever this team is playing because then they got to play somebody else next. You know, that's the kind of thing that it does for you is it just fills the schedule out a little bit. The other good thing is, and, and, and this is a real good thing. I'm, I don't like giving the Big Ten credit for anything. And honestly, the only reason they're doing this is because they were so dumb to wait so long to come back that they had to figure out how to give each team an extra game. But this concept of, like, championship Saturday, man, that is, that is the COVID thing from college football that I go ahead and tell you right now I want to keep. What the Big Ten is doing, they've got 14 teams. I still, you know, Big Ten, 14 teams. Two deep breaths and let's move on. The number one team in each division will obviously play each other for the conference championship in Indianapolis. The number two teams from each division are going to play. The number three teams from each division are going to play. Everybody gets another game. I'm telling you, if every conference doesn't do this next year. But here's the deal. You don't have to do them all on Saturday, right? So that, that last week of the season, you've had all your rivalry games. And now... You're coming around the next week, and you've got the number two teams going to play each other. So you're going to get Florida and Auburn playing each other at one of their home field, whoever has the higher-ranked the higher uh, ranked team in the final college football playoff poll or something like that. It's extra revenue for the team that gets to host the game. It's extra football for everybody. And play that beast on a Thursday night. Give me some SEC action on a Thursday night because you don't want to take anything away from the games on Saturday themselves, but just fill up that whole Saturday, that Thursday night and that Friday night. Why can't we do that? Because it, it'd be too good. It's like the Masters. Well, they give us four hours of coverage every 
every afternoon, Thursday and Friday. You got golfs going on from 7 a.m. to about 7.45 p.m. And you watch three and a half, four hours in the afternoon. Why would you not just show us the whole thing? Because we'd be too happy? This is a brilliant thing that the Big Ten is doing. Maybe the only brilliant thing the Big Ten's ever done. But this is something people need to look into. Now, do you really want to see, you know, this year Mississippi State and Vanderbilt play the seventh, you know, the seven v seven? Maybe not. So maybe you don't go all the way. But there's got to be there's got to be something we can do with this. It gets teams extra games, which can't be bad. And it, it's just more inventory. It's got to be more money for the ESPN and all those guys, which eventually means it's got to be more money for the conferences. This is a brilliant idea that needs to be explored some more, and it kills me that the Big Ten is the one that came up with it. However, let's talk about all the things I like to talk about with the Big Ten, is that that's all the crappy stuff. The media, for some unknown reason, loves the Big Ten in a disproportionately stupid way. Maybe it's because half of them went to Northwestern. I don't know. But they're talking about the arrival of the Big Ten as if they're confused as to how we could even be having football without the Big Ten. I would have been fine, personally. The other thing, and the other reason I think the media oversells the Big Ten is because they're just living way in the past. Just way in the past. So let's go through it right now. This week, in the AP poll, there are five teams from the Big Ten that are ranked. Ohio State's number five, Penn State is number eight, Wisconsin is number 14, Michigan is number 18, and Minnesota is number 21. Okay, so I would say that's decent representation for the conference. You know, I mean, you know, you got five teams in the top 25, you're a power five conference. I mean, it doesn't always work out that way, but that's like par, right? Five power five conferences, you got five teams in, that makes sense. The problem is everybody is fairly convinced that it's Ohio State, 737 feet of crap, and then the rest of these guys. And the way that people bag on the ACC, and I'm one of those people, okay, most years in the past few years since Clemson has been elite, it's Clemson, 475 feet of crap, and then whoever number two is. And number two isn't even like that bad of a team, but the disparity between Clemson and that number two team is so great, it really takes a lot of the juice out of the conference. And and whether or not you are completely bought into the fact that the SEC top to bottom is the best conference in college football, I, I don't need that. But what you can say is there are more good teams in the SEC than there are in the other conferences, period. There just are. You know, I mean, Georgia and Alabama played – you know, what was a really, really good game on Saturday night, played at a really high level. But then you also have good teams that aren't Georgia and Alabama. And so year after year, Florida's good, LSU's good, Auburn's good. You have other teams that are, you know, good, but then they're also interesting. I got to be honest with you guys. The ACC bores me to death. And my point here is, how is the Big Ten not covered the same way? It's Ohio State. 5,000 feet of crap and everybody else. And the difference is because they will convince you that Penn State is good, even though they're not. They'll convince you that Michigan is so great, even though every single year they get run by Ohio State. They're going to tell us about Wisconsin and whatever running back they have now, because they always have a running back. Oh, the offensive line at Wisconsin, they are so good. Cool. I'm not saying it's not important to have a good offensive line, but let me ask you a question. Who's playing quarterback for Wisconsin? Because for Georgia, apparently that's the only position you need because that's the one we don't have. But whoever is up there in Wisconsin, I'm sure they're fine because, you know, it's cold and they've got nothing else to do with their lives other than talk about their offensive linemen. Minnesota. Now, I'll, I'll say I enjoyed watching Minnesota last year. B.J. Fleck, they were, they were probably the most fun Big Ten team I've ever watched. But that's really not saying much. It's like saying the tallest midget. And here's the other reality of the Big Ten. As much it will pain the media to think about this, and that's why they just block it out. They're irrelevant. If you don't play football in the southern half of the United States, you are irrelevant. Don't believe me? In the BCS era, since the beginning of the BCS era in 1998, only two teams have won a national championship outside of the South. 
Ohio State in 2002 and 2014, and USC in 03 and 04. Now, we'll qualify this by saying, yes, they are the University of Southern California, but I am too Southern to try to make an argument to you, even if it makes my argument stronger. I cannot try to call Southern California anything to do with the South, okay? Ohio State is the only team that has won a national championship from above, if you just extend the Mason-Dixon line all the way across the country, just Ohio State in the last 22 years. They're irrelevant. Ohio State is sort of relevant, but that's it. There's nobody else relevant in the Big Ten, and that's why it's not interesting. Now compare that with the 18 seasons that came before 1998. So that's from 1980 through 1997. You had 10 different non-Southern teams Notre Dame was in there. Nebraska won multiple national championships. You had multiple non-Southern teams winning national championships. Colorado split one with Tech. So the way college football has progressed has just changed. And it's just made it that the Big Ten, Michigan won you know, half of a national championship. They split it in 1997 with Nebraska. And since then, it's Southern. It's the SEC schools, it's Clemson, it was Miami for a while, even USC. I mean, that's the climate that's a whole lot more like the South than it is Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I love watching those snow games. It's fun. (laughs) But these guys don't want to go play in that because you want to sit on your couch and watch it. You don't want to go out there and lose a finger playing football in Michigan for a 9-3 and team coached by Jim Harbaugh in their stupid pants. So here's the reality of the Big Ten this year. It's Ohio State, 747,000 miles of crap, and then everybody else. In week two for the Big Ten, which is Halloween weekend, so next weekend, the marquee game of the week is Ohio State versus Penn State. And that game will tell us everything we need to know about the Big Ten this year. But there's no good news that can come out of that game for the Big Ten, and let me explain to you why. Because it's Ohio State, 757 miles of crap, and then everybody else. If Penn State beats Ohio State, the Big Ten is done. Because I don't believe for a second that Penn State can run the table and and win the Big Ten championship. They're going to drop a game somewhere. The Big Ten needs Ohio State to run the table, They need Ohio State to not have any games canceled because the Big Ten didn't leave themselves any wiggle room in the schedule starting when they did. They've got eight straight weeks of games starting this weekend, running through December 12th, and then the championship game on December 19th. So a breakout at Ohio State means they're not going to be in. So they end up playing maybe, what, six games? Beat the living tar out of everybody else? And then you have to make the doomsday decision for college football. Is let's say, let's play out the thing that I mentioned earlier. Let's say Georgia somehow, some way figures out how to beat Alabama. You got two 10 and 1 teams out of the SEC sitting there. You've got a Clemson team that has won the national or won the ACC, and maybe Notre Dame, who only has one loss, and that being to Clemson. I don't guess that would really work because they would play them again in the ACC title game. You got a USC and an Oregon who played like seven games. Maybe one of them is undefeated. And here you got Ohio State, who everybody knows is good. And I'm not denying whether or not Ohio State is good. You've you've not heard me say that during all of this. So don't, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. Ohio State is good. But if they only end up playing six or seven games, I don't know, guys. I don't know. Because I could pick seven games on Georgia's schedule that we could win all of them. And the schedule makers for the Big Ten, they knew what they were doing. Ohio State plays Nebraska this week. It's, it's a noon kickoff. We'll get to the viewing guide here in just a moment. Then they play Penn State. And if you look at their schedule right now, the next time they play a ranked team is the last game of the season against Michigan. Now, a lot of people accuse the SEC of just working the schedule to benefit the best teams. Now, my entire argument against that was just look at the first three weeks of Georgia's, the first four weeks of Georgia's schedule. If, if, we're, if we're really setting this up just for the best teams, we are one of the best teams in the league, and we had to play 
Alabama, Tennessee, and Auburn three straight games. So they didn't help us at all. You throw Florida in there with four of our first six games against high, uh, you know, some fairly decent teams. So the Big Ten took care of Ohio State. The Big Ten needs Ohio State. But if something happens and Ohio State loses a game, or if they the, uh, the Big Ten starts doing to itself what the Big 12 did, I'll tell you right now, there is going to be some reckoning come uh, Selection Sunday because I don't know how much we can really learn about these teams in this short amount of time. And you may say, you know, what are you saying? They, but with that championship game, they're going to play nine games versus the SEC 10. Well, A, it's two more games that the SEC champion will have played than the Big Ten champion. I think that matters. It's three more games that the ACC champion will have played versus the Big Ten champion. And something has to be said for the difficulty of the schedule because right now, the way the schedules are set up, none of these big teams, Big Ten teams, are playing more than like two ranked teams in their schedule to start with. So we'll see how it plays out, but there's going to be a lot of fanfare about the Big Ten coming back. And again, there are some decent parts of it, but maybe not as much as the media. Finish up today's podcast with this week's viewing guide. It's very simple. I, I always, I wish the the this week was a little bit better. I always look at Georgia's off week and hope that there's just a lot of really good stat games because it's a week where I have no worries. There's no chance that you know Georgia can lose because we're not playing. So I can just relax and enjoy college football the way other people get to you know when their team's not playing. So. It's not as good as I had hoped, but it's not bad. So we're actually going to start on Friday night with the first Big Ten game of the year. You got Illinois on the road at Wisconsin. You may be thinking to yourself, what what, what do you mean? You expect me to watch Illinois play Wisconsin in football on a Friday night? Well, I don't really, but mainly because it's on the Big Ten network, and I think only like three people in the South get that. But I'm one of them because of YouTube TV. I can't watch Atlanta United play because I don't get Fox Sports South, but thank God I got the Big Ten network. Idiots. Um, Wisconsin's the number 14 team in the country last year when Wisconsin was ranked in the top 10 they went on the road to Illinois and lost so that to me is why this game is semi-interesting not to mention it's a ranked team playing on a Friday night and there's nothing else to do because uh, there's I think a baseball game on like from the World Series but I'm not going to watch that Wisconsin's the 19 and a half point favorite they were big favorites last year so Levy Smith and the Illini trying to upset Wisconsin for the second straight year I'll at least peek at it at some point on Friday night. On Saturday, I've got a quartet of games for you to keep an eye on at noon. Um, On Fox, I talked about it earlier, Nebraska on the road at number five, Ohio State. Ohio State is the 27-and-a-half point favorite. I can't tell you that I know a whole lot about Nebraska other than they have a pretty good coach in Scott Frost, and I believe – that they have uh, no quarterback, and they still haven't had a quarterback. It's been like 47 years since they had a good quarterback. Uh, That game is on Fox at noon. You go over ESPN at noon, you're going to get number 23 NC State at number 14 North Carolina. North Carolina is the 17-point favorite. Coming off a loss for North Carolina uh, against Florida State last week, where the Heels were ranked fifth uh, last week, got beat on the road at Florida State. Ugh. Um, so yeah, there's the battle for the Tar Heel State right there. Big things happening. The game I'll be watching just because I think it's going to be the most entertaining is on the SEC Network, uh, Auburn at Ole Miss. Auburn is the three-point road favorite. Not sure how. Uh, I think Ole Miss is going to blow Auburn out. I don't think Auburn's defense is very good at all, and I don't think Auburn's offense is good enough. So I think Ole Miss probably wins that game by two touchdowns. And I'll just go ahead and ruin everything now because that is my pick of the year of the week. Auburn on the road, minus three. You got Ole Miss catching three. I'll take the points, but I'm not going to need them. Ole Miss is going to beat Auburn at noon on the SEC Network. And then the other game to finish out, uh, Oklahoma. After the miserable start that they had to their Big Big 12 season where they lost their first two Big 12 games, Two weeks ago, they beat Texas in like 17,000 overtimes. 
And now they go on the road to play Gary Patterson's TCU team at a game that kicks off at noon. Upset alert for Oklahoma. They are the seven-point favorite. I don't know very much about TCU other than that they are coached by Gary Patterson. What I do know is Oklahoma have better figured something out or it's going to get really, really ugly for them this year. Move on to 330. A couple games to keep an eye on here. You got number two, Alabama, on the road at Tennessee. Last week, Kentucky went on the road and beat Tennessee and beat their breaks off in Knoxville. And so this week, a really good Alabama team goes in there. They're only a 21-point favorite. I think that's probably a a, a buy. I think um, maybe the bookmakers think that Alabama comes out and maybe they're not quite as up for Tennessee as they were for Georgia last week. But I'm not sure it's going to matter. Jeremy Pruitt and his staff, after a, a nice showing against Georgia and a good start to this season, that loss to Kentucky last week has completely reset things in Knoxville. The butt kicking that they're going to get this week is going to kind of put everybody back to where they were before they won the first two games of this season. And everybody's going to be looking around, thinking to themselves, uh, did we screw up by giving Jeremy Pruitt more money to continue doing what he has been doing? I think that is a good question. Also, uh, so that game is the CBS 330 game over on ABC at 330. You've got number three, Notre Dame, on the road at Pittsburgh. Pitt is going to pit. Now, what that means is if Pitt's a favorite, you don't want to touch them. It doesn't matter who they're playing. It doesn't matter that they should beat them by four and a half touchdowns. Pitt is going to pit. But the other thing Pitt does is when they are an underdog, as they are in this game with Notre Dame, favored by ten and a half, Pitt pits then too. So Pitt's going to put up a fight. I think Notre Dame wins the game, but the ten and a half would make me nervous. You'll get that game on ABC. Number 17, Iowa State. At Oklahoma State, the Cowboys of Oklahoma State are three-and-a-half-point favorites. That game is on Fox at 3.30. So three games to watch at 3.30. You might be thinking to yourself, why in the world would I watch that? You probably won't. But I will say Oklahoma State is pretty much the last hope for the Big 12 when it comes to the college football playoff. So a ranked team coming into T-Boom Pickens Stadium. Um It feels like Iowa State should win this game just to go ahead and bury the Big 12, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, Three and a half is not a lot of points. I think Oklahoma State will win that game. At seven, we get South Carolina on the road at LSU in Death Valley. Uh, LSU is the six and a half point favorite. That game is yours on ESPN. South Carolina coming off of a big win last week, Uh, and now, you know, maybe things for Muschamp are turning around a, a little bit. I, I don't know. So we will see if Muschamp can go and do anything on the road at LSU. Um, that's just an interesting game because no matter who loses, every somebody's going to be freaking out pretty big. At 7.30, number 18, Michigan, on the road at number 21, Minnesota. That is yours on ABC. That's this week's, you know, super prime time. They're going to have Kirk Herb Street their game of the week. Um I don't know anything about either one of these teams other than that there are only five ranked big team teams right now, and one of them is going to be unranked because they're going to be 0-1 after this week. Uh, Michigan is a three-point favorite on the road. To me, that seems weird. That's all I got for you. And then at 9 o'clock, and you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world are you talking to me about Cincinnati at SMU? Well, here's a couple reasons. One, Cincinnati's ranked in the top ten. They're the number nine team in the country. They're going on the road to play at SMU, that's ranked number 16. Both of these teams are undefeated. SMU is a two-and-a-half-point favorite. This game is on ESPN2, so let me tell you a couple reasons why you should watch this game. Number one, the winner of this game has the inside track to play in the, in the New Year's Six, um, which, I mean, that's something. Two, uh, this is two undefeated teams playing at 9 o'clock at night. What else are you doing on Saturday night at 9 o'clock? I think there might be a baseball game, but I won't be watching it. So, this is this is basically as close as we're going to get for another week or so to Pac-12 after dark, right? This is a late-night game. The kids, everybody's gone to bed. It's like, uh, I'm not sleepy yet. I'm still wanting to watch some football. Ooh, Cincinnati and SMU kicking off at 9. So that game won't be over till like 1 a.m. So there you go. That's this week's viewing guide. I think it's a solid week. It, it's not great. You're really missing that one marquee matchup. But I do think there are some interesting games. Uh, for me, at least, I really think the most interesting game, and I know it sounds backwards because neither one of the teams are ranked, but Lane Kiffin is much must-watch TV for me right now, and Ole Miss is too. They're interesting every week. 
it's either interesting because they're really good on offense and terrible on defense, or it'll be interesting to see if Auburn can actually come up with a way for beating Ole Miss. I am so thankful that Georgia does not have to play Ole Miss this year. I mean, really, had that been one of the games we got added before the season, I'd have been thinking, oh, that ain't a big deal, it's just Ole Miss. I would be so worried about Ole Miss right now if we had to play them. So I just think that's a super interesting game. And uh, But I think there's a few different interesting games. And a lot of times these weeks where we think uh, nothing's going to happen, it, it seems kind of boring on paper, sometimes those are the ones where chaos rules the most. So um, talking to you, Pitt, just go on and pit. Pit like you know how to pit. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week. I appreciate your patience. It's kind of hard to come up with things on uh, Georgia's off week, but we will be back on Monday. We will talk a little bit more about the weekend that was. We will see if the Falcons can manage to screw up and win another game, and we will start getting you ready for Georgia traveling to Lexington to take on the Kentucky Wildcats on Halloween at noon. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have a great weekend. Go dogs.